Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. How's it going? Good, good, good. This has been a really busy week, actually. We've put out a shit ton of content. Yeah, I so I was having a bit of a dip. I was feeling the the quarantine blues. I wasn't being like nearly as productive as I wanted to be. And I was working on these paintings and they were going much slower than I had anticipated. So the past couple of weeks have been sort of a little bit lower for me. This week we started doing our Patreon calls and like it's just given me a new lease of life. I love the fact that we, so um, for people who don't know, if you're signed up on our Patreon, then we do like a one-on-one call and we kind of answer any questions that you guys have got about whatever it is that you're working on. And we've been scheduling those in for 9am in the morning. I don't know which one of us came up with doing it at nine o'clock in the morning, but like it's genius because it just like it gives my day energy. Yeah, it was technically your idea, the 9am thing, because I was like, well, we need to schedule these across a certain period of time. How do you want to do it? I was like, do we do them in like a bulk session of like get as many as we can done in a day or do we spread them over a certain amount of time? Uh, and you were like, well, if we can do them either at like 5 p.m. or 9 a.m., then that kind of bookends our day. So it doesn't then interrupt anything that we're working on. Because yeah, I feel like yeah. that kind of level of like deep work is really important. So as soon as something, I know if we're ever recording something or I've got a meeting or I have to be somewhere around between 11 and 3, it really kind of ruins your day a bit. It kind of yeah. disrupts whatever you're doing. Because I feel like if we've got, say, a podcast recording at 11, then... I can't really get into anything before then because I'm so conscious that that's happening in the future. So you kind of like lose that start of your day. But I feel like, yeah, doing these at 9am, it just gets your mind. It's like doing exercise in the morning. It's getting your mind into the zone that it needs to be into and just puts you on such a positive path. Not to big ourselves up too much, but like we've been on fire on these calls. They have been really like, good, yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff we've... Uh, like it's just really fun like picking apart someone else's creative practice i love it when it's in front of you every day like there's probably people who could pick apart our businesses and go oh you could do this better when you're so close to it it's really difficult to see and when you can have that zoomed out view and you can just look at someone's business on the surface of like of like we literally will go through their social media we'll look at their website quickly before we jump on the call and we have no idea what they're going to ask from having that kind of outside perspective you can you can offer something really unique that they probably haven't thought of or if they're or, or like they're just not sure about which direction to go and you can like kind of push them in that in the way that you think is going to work best. Yeah, it's funny because it's one of those things where when someone else tells you ideas for your own business, you generally feel like you've thought of them all already. Our old accountant used to give us loads of advice of like, oh, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And they were all ideas that we've definitely thought about before and we know they wouldn't work because we probably tried them or we've just gone through that before. So yeah, said, so like, for example, he was like, you guys should do a t-shirt range. We had done a t-shirt range and it didn't work. And like the time commitment that it would take to to properly like market and and build an actual t-shirt, which essentially is starting up a clothing brand. And we like, it just wasn't for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that was one of his big ideas. <laughs> that was one, one of many. Yeah. 
I feel like it does really help and especially when we meet people at events and we meet people in public I feel like we do have good advice to give people because we've got 10 years of experience. One of my favorite things that we we spoke about so so yeah you can see those on our Instagram at Rebels Create. The first two we didn't record because we're idiots and one thing that came up in one of those was the the time management of posting to different platforms. So if you're receiving traction on Instagram, do you just go all in on Instagram and ignore all other platforms or should you be spreading your time amongst all of them? We say a lot, it, you should post where your audience are. And I think that is the, out of everything, that is the most important thing to do. You need to work out who your audience are, where they're consuming content and post onto those platforms. If your audience aren't on a certain platform or there's a very, very small amount that might see it, then maybe don't use that platform unless it's something like LinkedIn because LinkedIn is a very different kind of platform to other social networks because it's heavily business related and all it takes is for one person who you're connected with to see it and then that gets exposed to their audience which could then lead to a job. Yeah absolutely I so we talk all the time about planting flags and obviously plant flags where they're going to be seen is a a clear and simple piece of advice However, if you're say you're popping on Instagram and that's that's winning for you at the moment, um, if you do have time and you can post another flag on your LinkedIn where you only have say 200 connections or like or 50 connections, the the chance of that flag being discovered is a lot lower. However, it is still a flag, and the more flags you have, the more it can benefit you. So. If someone likes your post on LinkedIn and you've only got 50 connections, that post will then get shown to a select number of contacts of, of the person that has liked your post. So the chances are then that someone else is going to see that post and then that might result in new business for you. But if you didn't post it to LinkedIn, it's definitely not going to be new business to you. So I think it's, I mean, we always talk about like owning your platform. Um, you you don't own Instagram. It's like a podcast is something that you do own. Your website is something that you that you do own. Um, and so those are, are super valuable and need to be looked after and cherished. But the thing is, like, you may be popping on Instagram today, but like we were popping on Facebook in 2011. And, and now that is a barren wasteland and we do not post there because no one actually sees it. It's such a time to value ratio in terms of the effort you put into planting that flag. And this is where it comes down to repurposing content because if you spent time creating a post for Instagram that's a good post, when it comes to posting onto LinkedIn, it doesn't have to be a, a completely fresh new post. Think about, well, if I've got a lot less people who are going to see this on here, how much effort do I need to put in to change this post enough to make it relevant for LinkedIn that's still going to have the benefit when it goes on there? So if it's going to take you another six hours to repurpose it for LinkedIn, then maybe it's not worth that time putting into it. It might be worth taking that time and putting that into making another post for Instagram or whatever platform is doing the best for you currently. But if it is only uh, 15 minutes or 20 minutes to repurpose that to go to there, for example, the IGTV things we've been posting from the mornings, it's like I can make it into an IGTV format, edit it from there, but then because I've edited it, it doesn't take me too much longer to repurpose that into YouTube content. It's not like I'm starting from fresh again. It's just a slight repurpose to allow me to post onto two different platforms. Yeah, 100%. So this week's guest, Daniel Priestley, has actually written a book called 24 Assets that I would, I mean, we recommend every single one of his books, but 
in in the 24 assets book there there's a lot of talk about like building digital assets and we do touch on it in this week's episode so this this week's episode i mean we have met a lot of our heroes um creating this podcast um people that we never thought we'd be in the same room as and this is is one of our heroes and uh, shared for both you and me. This is someone that we've looked up to for a very long time. Yeah, I remember when my friend Tom first gave me oversubscribed years ago now. I think it was a f- the second business book I actually consumed. And I was just like, this guy, this everything in this book is gold. And we put so much fit into practice. I think I read it. And I was like, David, Yona, you need to both consume this as quick as quickly as possible because there's so much value in it. And we've implemented so much of what he said into our businesses. And we probably wouldn't have a podcast if it wasn't for his other book, Key Persons of Influence. So yeah, so much of what he said has massively influenced our businesses and how we've succeeded over the years. Yeah, there's probably not been, uh, there's probably not another person on the planet who has had more to do with the success of our business than uh, Daniel Priestley from an external point of view. So we are just absolutely ecstatic to uh, to bring this this episode to you guys. Um, it was recorded before lockdown. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably have Daniel on again just to, uh, because he's just such a, a fountain of knowledge. And the one of the most surprising things that I, I think comes out of, of this interview and from consuming his content is that there are patterns. There are so many patterns in business and he, like um, whatever it is that you do, you probably feel like you're a unique snowflake that no one has ever experienced these things the same way that you have. But what Daniel kind of shows is that there are universal truths that are relevant to every single business and everyone goes through the same thing. So once you can acknowledge those things and realize that they're there, then you can um, start to deal with them. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like so many guests that we've had in the podcast, we've started to spot those patterns. And yeah, as Daniel talks about in his books, there is an exact, it's it's a weirdly creepy formula of exactly how businesses go from starting to having 100 employees. And it's so interesting, like when you read through his books, it feels like it's written specifically for you because it's like, this is creepily exactly how our business is. Yeah. So uh, Daniel Priestley is an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and an international speaker. His company, Dent Global, is a business accelerator, but Daniel and his team will only work with companies and entrepreneurs that are making a positive impact in the world. Without Daniel's book, as we just mentioned, Oversubscribed, we probably wouldn't have a business, and without his book, Key Person of Influence, we definitely wouldn't have a podcast. So we are ecstatic to bring you Daniel Priestley. In this episode, we talk about the human brain, 7114 and becoming oversubscribed. So the only businesses that uh, are in a position to tolerate profit is businesses that are oversubscribed, where there's a waiting list. If I ring you up and say, can you do this job for me? You're saying, I'm sorry, but this month we're completely booked. Hi, Dan. Hey, thank you very, very much for having me. Welcome to the show. So you've written a bunch of books that we've read, or every single book that you've uh, that you've put out. I got four pounds for that. <laughs> Did you? Okay. Wow! Yeah. Oh, big money. Actually, I, if you both bought them, I've got four pounds each. It's about I, a pound a book. I bought four the books. audio books and the written books as My well. My goodness, I so. got like eight pounds for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I mean, it's that, that's not the question I was going to ask, but it kind of brings <laughs> up a, an interesting point in that you've always said that 
um, don't write a book to make any money because yeah. it's flawless. So you 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 don't sell a book, a book sells you. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's a big big difference. So the old model of write, why you would write a book is to try and make money off books. And so if you even go into the publishing industry today, to the big old publishers, they're going to say, um, you know, they're going to build their whole contract around and their whole premise around selling books. They see authors as the vehicle for selling books. Your job as the author is to run around selling books and and like crazy and my view of it is that books have a job to sell you and that actually what the the thing that clicked in my head is i was having lots of coffee meetings with business people and meeting people and having the same conversations over and over and pitching what i'm doing and and all of that sort of stuff and it kind of realized that every single coffee meeting that i would have of course you know having invited them to meet with me i would pick up the coffee and the transport and the time and all that sort of stuff and like even just the coffee was you know always about 8 pounds right mm-hmm. so i th- kind of figured actually if i just sent thousands of people books provided they're the right kind of people it's kind of like having a cup of coffee it shares all those same ideas um they'll read it when they get around to it and actually a book is almost like being able to have coffee with thousands of people a month at scale uh, without it taking up any of your own time. So for me, I just see books as a way of going out and reaching people, having a powerful conversation. Um, you know, the good good thing is I, I personally have good days and bad days when I'm on form and when I'm not, yeah. uh, whereas the book is always on message. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, so for me, it's just this really great tool that the book's job is to, is to go out and be the perfect business development manager. So do you... I'm guessing you haven't cut off all meetings of any people altogether. You've not just kind of like locked yourself in a room and yeah, said the book can do Howard, it. Howard, Howard Elon Musk yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so how do you qualify who you actually would take a meeting with and who? Um, well, I'm terrible at, I always just say yes to meetings. And the game changer for me was getting a PA and working together on kind of a bit of a, um, a criteria and then just asking her, just please don't tell me who you're saying yes and no to, just as long as it meets the criteria. Because I panic when I say no to a meeting because I just have, you know, my first 10 years in business was just say yes to everything, yeah. meet everyone. Um, so I always feel terrible when, like, someone messaged out of the blue and they said, that, can we have a meeting? And it's like, I, you know, I hear about the fact that, you know, it didn't happen and I'm like, oh, no, they're going to hate me. <laughs> um, whereas, she, she, you know, she kind of just has a polite way of saying no. But uh, So we just agreed a criteria in advance and, and did all that sort of stuff. So do you think when, it, when you are getting started, it is worth saying yes to everything? Um, within reason, yeah. You know, I, I um, you know, my first 10 years in business, I went to every networking thing that I could do. I ran events. Um, I, I would always get myself a membership at a private members club that was nice and central and kind of a bit of a destination in itself and just try and ram my diary full of face-to-face meetings, um, you know, to talk about partnerships. When I first arrived in London, the first thing I did, because I'd never been above the equator, uh, and I'd never been to London, obviously, and, you know, just kind of arriving in this massive city for the first time with a suitcase. <laughs> and um, and I, the first thing I did is I made a list of all the people who were influential in my space that I wanted to get into, uh, and I hired a restaurant private dining area that could seat 26 people, and I just got um, – I got – I, I just sent out invitations to them all saying, I've just arrived in London. Uh, I'd, I'd love to host you for a dinner. I'm, I'm putting together a dinner with all the influencers in the space. Uh, would you like to come along? It's all, I'm paying for everything. I remember it was about 1,500, 1,600 pounds to, to have a two-course meal and a b- bottle of wine you know, on the tables. And then as a result of that, that kind of was in the first couple of weeks of arriving 
And then I teed up meetings with everyone afterwards, the weeks afterwards, and did joint venture deals with them all. And we ended up doing a launch event and had 800 people turn up to our launch events. It was amazing. Man- yeah, Manchester, Birmingham, London, London. Uh, Milton, Manchester, Birmingham, Milton Keynes, London, London, London um, was our launch week. And we ended up doing about 800 grand worth of sales in the first four months. Um, so it was kind of like standing start. Uh, you know, I arrived in June. We launched in September. Wow. And it was like 800 grand worth of new business in the first couple of weeks uh, of actual launch. And what was the what was the company? Um, so it was a training business, training um, workshops and all of that sort of stuff. I had previously had a company in Australia um, and we'd done training alongside software. So, you know, that had been a fairly large you know, take company that took off, uh, went from zero to a million and then one to 11 million over about four or five years. Um, so it was a kind of exciting, fast growth, crazy ride. And we were running um, rollouts for uh, software franchises um, and we were taking percentage of success fees. So when, when our clients did well, we did really well. Um, we we're the only company that kind of took a risk and actually took, you know, took on clients uh, based on success fees. Um, and that was a great model, great success business. And when I got out of that um, and came to London, I basically wanted to kind of get into the world of entrepreneurship. And, you know, it was very early on. It was 2006. Mm-hmm. So pre-iPhone, pre-app businesses and all that sort of stuff. Pre and the word entrepreneurship being thrown around. Every day, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I just kind of launched some entrepreneur events where we were doing trainings and, and we were bringing entrepreneurs from around the world to come to London and people who I'd seen in Australia uh, and in the USA. And I basically took contracts to launch them in London. So um, proven products in other parts of the world but had never been launched here in, in London. Uh, and I basically came in and launched them. Um, so it was uh, it was that that was the kind of model and uh, it was great. But it was that whole idea of meeting people, lots of meetings. To go back to the original question, lots of meetings in order to um, in order to kind of coordinate a launch. Yeah, I mean, we always say the people that you meet will change your life, and there's the sum of the five people and mm. all of those things. It's like yeah, as soon as you arrive somewhere, and even if you're already in that place, like getting those people around you is is key, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. The the so the sum of the five people. Um, the other saying that I like is that um, someone woke up today with the thing that you want or need. So someone's already got it. So mm-hmm. if you say, "Oh, gee, I'd love a hundred thousand person on database," and it's like, "Well, someone's got a hundred thousand people on database." Yeah, they've already got it. Someone, someone probably within two miles of here has got a hundred thousand person database of exactly the type of people that you want to talk to. You know, you say, "Oh, gee, you know, my business would get off the ground if I had money." Well, actually, there's loads of people in London who've got way too much money and they're like, what should I do with it? Um, even in the on the cab ride here, when I was coming here, a friend of mine's texted me and he said, oh, you know, January's been a huge start. I've made £65,000 for the month um, and I'm, I'm doing that every month. What should I What should I do with my money? What should I be investing? <laughs> yeah. in? He's yeah. like, I've got, I've got too much money I need to know what to do with. So uh, someone always wakes up every morning with the thing that is the missing piece for you. And we tend to think, oh, well, I've got to go through the whole journey and get that thing and get that missing piece. You don't. You just have to partner with the person who has it. Yes, absolutely true. So on the topic of money, I've heard you talk before about sort of being in your 20s, making loads of cash, having a lot of fun, but then kind of ultimately not being that fulfilled and um, having to find, I think you talked about like finding a purpose. Mm. Like how important is purpose to you? 
So it has a number of per- purpose has a number of purposes, right? So purely and simply chasing the money tends to not put you into a very creative space. If all you're focused on is your own survival, uh, especially if you're actually focused on your own survival, you go into a part of your brain that is survival mode. And all you can think about is very, very short-term fight, flight, freeze moves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in your comfort zone, you just do whatever you've previously been doing. You turn up for work and you just do a normal day and you mm. just kind of whatever you're used to doing, whatever you're comfortable doing, you get up and do the same thing and eat the same breakfast cereal and then go home and watch the same Netflix. and Which is most people, I think. No, yeah, you yeah. Get, you, yeah, we are programmed to get caught in, in that rut. We're actually, yeah. you know, if you, if you ape like ancestors, if we walk a certain path and it always leads to food and nothing hurts us, we walk that path every day. Yeah. And it's like that's good survival um so so what we're trained to do mentally is to find a path that feeds us and just not deviate too far from that path so you've got to be a bit conscious about well what would bring me out of that what would what would make me reach for something more and it, it turns out that when you face a really big and meaningful problem like a huge meaningful problem something something way beyond your own survival um it actually triggers a part of the brain that is highly creative innovative uh, visual um, it's a part of the brain that is um, highly empathetic it cares it cares about the whole world it's you know it's passionate and all of that lives right up at the top of the part of the brain that you'll only go to when facing a big meaningful problem and it's not a big meaningful like I would love a boat in an island it's mm-hmm. a big meaningful god there's something in the on the planet that needs changing so when you get when you see these entrepreneurial heroes that most of us have, you actually go and have a look at what they start with. They typically do not start with, I wish I had an island. They start with, I want to make sure every person on the planet has access to clean water or I want to um, solve this industry that's that's you know crippling under itself. I want to, I want to disrupt these big evil corporates who need to be disrupted and I want to be the company that takes a baseball bat to them, right? And it's kind of like these, you know, these kind of, you know, creative rebels, um, this purpose beyond making money, beyond own survival, and that actually takes you into the space of creativity. When we face small, insignificant challenges and problems, we actually go reptile brain. So if I turn the Wi-Fi off and we all drop off our, our internet, <laughs> you know, suddenly we're, uh, we're freaking out. Like uh, like little you know horrible reptiles. So small stuff makes us go spiraling down. Big stuff, counterintuitively, you would think you know the big problems would be crushing, but big problems actually bring us alive. Mm. And the problem that most people face is they haven't picked a big enough problem, or they're waiting for some big problem to come and find them. It's not how it works. You your porpoise doesn't come and swim up to you. Your porpoise, you got to swim out to it, right? And that's how you find your porpoise. Uh, <laughs> So, so everyone's out there waiting for their their purpose to come along, and it's like, no, it's not how it works. You got to make some shit up. Uh, what would you say your purpose is, and how have you found that? So I didn't find it; I made it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make a positive impact in the world. So for me, it is about creating tens of thousands of entrepreneurs who are building a commercially successful business that also does something good. And we've defined doing good by aligning to a UN global goal. Um, doing pro bono work, uh, changing the nature of how you run your business to be better in line with the UN goals, 
um, and um, and actually giving some money to charity when you're making profit. So we've got some frameworks around how a business can do good and what, what that actually looks like. Um, and what we do is we go out and enroll people in that and we enroll people in that vision and we enroll them in a, in a two-pronged attack, which is number one, we can help you grow a very successful company. We can introduce you to the funding and the mentors and the environment that would do that. Number two, the condition of entry is that you're going to use your business for a force for good in the world. Um, so that's my purpose, right? So it's made up. I invented it. Um, it didn't hit me one day, you know, or no one sent me a letter. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I sat down and I thought, what do I actually want to do with the, the next 10, 20, 30 years? Um, I looked at people like uh, David Attenborough and I thought, you know, isn't it incredible what happens when someone does something decade after decade after decade and they let it build and build and build and build? And I thought, you know, I want to be that kind of person, that someone who picks something early on and goes for something for decades at a time. And, and like for me, I had to think about well, what would I be comfortable doing at age 70, age 80, age 90? And if I'm still at age 90 developing entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up and make a positive impact in the world, I'm happy. I'm going to be fine with that. It, it seems to me that that is actually a better model than kind of the charity model. I think I think business can probably make more of an impact if scaling in that way than, than maybe charities can. 100%. Uh, 2013, I was sitting in a room with Elon Musk. Um, it sounds cool, but it was, <laughs> it was like several several thousand people in that room. Um, but, uh, but I was sitting in a room with Elon Musk and the guy up on stage asks Elon Musk, you know, what are you going to do when BMW and General Motors come and compete with you? And he goes, that's the plan. He says, you know, the, the, he said, like, Tesla exists to accelerate the transformation to sustainable energy and sustainable transportation. He goes, if they put us out of business, we'll have succeeded. Mm. I'm like, oh, Elon. It's crazy, isn't you, it? Yeah, I was just sitting in the audience with a massive man crush, my eyes welling up with tears, hearing that he's, like, totally cool with the idea of being put out of business if it gets the vision, the mission done. And I was like, wow, that, you know, that is is so cool and if you and at the time I, I promise you at the time it seemed like such a pipe dream mm -hmm. that it's like oh he's never going to do that like of course he's a at the time i think he's a one billion pound business in an industry where you know his nearest competitor was a 40 billion pound yeah. business um and uh and i thought you know it's 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 cool to say but it's unlikely. And 10 years later, he's the biggest car company in the world and he's disrupting the hell out of them and they're all going electric. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Volkswagen's getting smashed for, for, for what they've done uh, with their emissions and, uh, and, and, and they're having to follow Elon Musk's lead. And it's like, yeah, business, business can really accelerate transformation, accelerate change. You know, business has a an ability to create a scalable model. Charities typically don't. They don't have a scalable business model. Their business model is when someone else feels guilt or shame or frustration or annoyance and they've got a little bit of extra money to give, they can do that. Business isn't like that. It's like, you know, we're gonna create we're gonna create something that disrupts the way we do things and do it a better way. You know, uh, Spotify probably eradicated you know, hundreds of millions of tons of CDs plastic yeah. out of out of the supply chain by just creating a disruptive model. And and when you get businesses that can create a better model, um, you know, you can actually do a lot of good. I jumped on a call with a listener um, yesterday, and she was sort of really struggling with her business. And she had like a drop shipping business where she's sending out t-shirts and she listened to our episode on um, sustainability, fast fashion, how mm -hmm. fast fashion is wrecking the planet. 
and she was like all of a sudden I just I, I've got this thing and I'm part of the problem and I, I I don't know what to do and I sort of said well like I mean you if you if this thing because all of her t-shirts are around like plants and gardening mm. and that sort of stuff I was like if that is what you are truly passionate about then you can partner with a sustainable t-shirt brand and you and there, there are ways to do that properly mm. but I said you don't just have to be an entrepreneur because you think you should be um because that kind of with the drop shipping thing that was kind of what i sort of felt is like i i hate this nine to five thing i've left it and mm. i need to do something mm. so here's a thing that i can do and i sort of said to her like find what you what again finding your, your purpose but i was like think about something if you really really care about plants and you want to make these garments that are around plants then that's great but like ask yourself is that really what you want to do and i think it's important for people to to think of what think of what they're doing like the i mean impact is my word for the year it's the thing we're thinking about Make so dent. much yep then yeah um but but like i think we and maybe it's this putting entrepreneurship and not having a nine to five on a pedestal but i kind of said to her that the ideal is to have a nine to five that you care and love about and you're aligned with the with the company's mission mm. and you have fun when you go into work and then you leave the door at six o'clock and you can go home and, and play badminton. Uh, big time. Look, the I'll say a few things about this, which is number one, people think that there's a choice between having a corporate career in a big corporation or going and starting your own company. Mm. And there's 5.7 million businesses in between. Yeah. Right, so <laughs> there are 5.7 million businesses that already exist. They've already got you know some traction, whether it be small or large, um, and they're not corporates. They're small to medium-sized businesses, and they're they're already out there. Right, so uh, and many of them are desperate for talent to help and support and all of this sort of stuff. So that the first idea is that there's actually a, a, an enormous amount of opportunity that isn't starting your own business but isn't working in a big boring nine-to-five corporate where you hate it. So, you know, so that's the first thing that most people just don't consider. And then the next thing I would say is that entrepreneurship, I love this idea that it's a like a ship, right? And the founder gets way too much credit. So the founder is this person who starts with a blank idea and comes up with a few ideas to kick it off and get the first couple of hundred grand going typically, and then they hire the first few people. And... The typical journey of an entrepreneurial business that succeeds is that the founder's really good at getting it up to about 10 people. Um, so most founders I've ever worked with, they're actually kind of built for getting a business up to a small group of ragtag rebels. Mm -hmm. um, and then at around 10 people, you start to hire people who are a bit smarter than yourself and you start to hire people who, who understand how to manage a business. And then if you're smart, you step back and let them do it. And the actual value creation, the real money creation, actually, where the money shows up is not in the first million. The first million doesn't actually make the founder all that much money. It's going from one to 10 million that, that really creates wealth and wealth creation happens at that one to 10 million phase. So, um, and that's actually less about the founder and more about the, the team uh, who are working on the thing. So, you know, my business launched in Cairns, Australia, and I found out about it on Facebook this week. I'm like, the team is like, oh, here we are launching in Cairns. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, what you want is a, a business that takes off and, and creates a life of its own and you hire great people and get out of their way. So someone who's really talented should look for a team that's about eight or nine people and join that team and help them cross the desert and go from 10 to 50 people. And that's a really wild ride in itself. And there's a lot of wealth that can get created and all that, all that happens. Pretty exciting 
you know, it's a pretty exciting ride going from 10 to 50. So yeah, this, this idea that you have to start a business. So for example, my first business here in the UK was bringing proven products from Australia and the US into London. And they were already proven products with brochures and landing pages and testimonials and all of that sort of stuff. So it was very easy for me to turn the tap on in just a new location. Mm-hmm. Um, your friend who you're talking about, your listener, there's an amazing business called Nalu run by a, a teenage girl um, out of Bali and her brother. And, um, and Nalu uh, is sustainable and ethical clothing that is produced, surf clothing, and they're going into other ranges as well. And every time they sell uh, clothing, they buy school uniforms for girls and kids in India. And basically, in India, you can't go to school unless you have a school uniform, and there's no grants for school uniforms, and it's this weird thing that happens. Yeah. And she's identified this. She was, she was traveling with her parents through India. She found this phenomenon. She realized that all these, you know, especially girls didn't have school uniforms, suitable school uniforms, so were dropping out of school. And she thought, how much is a school uniform? It's like four or five pounds. So she basically created a fashion brand that pays for school uniforms and is an ethically produced business. Now, that business is flying. She's being mentored by um, Donna Karen, and um, she's got uh, funding now out of New York, and they're putting her through New York Fashion School and, like, all all um, paid for. She's connecting with some of the top business people in the planet in the fashion world, and she's, you know, she's really onto something. And I don't think they're doing much here in London. And all you would have to do is just tap into that momentum that's already rolling and actually say, well, we'll be your representatives here in London. We'll grow this brand here in London. That That is going to be way more of a fun ride than starting from scratch. 100%. You mentioned the, the desert there. Through you've trained and mentored thousands of entrepreneurs mm. through your career and you've started to recognize patterns, which is wild to me because our last 10 years it just like it feels like no one would have gone through what we've been through in the last yeah. 10 years but but actually that's very wrong <laughs> that's isn't very it and, and most people are going through the same yeah the same it's, thing. it's it's like a puberty no one knows how i yeah. feel <laughs> you don't understand me. It's like everyone knows how you feel uh so yeah so three to 12 people is this beautiful business called a boutique and at, at the boutique phase you know it's a ragtag bunch of rebels and you're having a great time and everyone's on the team because they're available and because they're you know, a bit quirky, a bit different. Um, no one's really kind of, you know, looking for a nine-to-five environment. It's fun, it's free, it's flexible. If you get it right, it's exhilarating because, you know, typically there's a key person of influence, someone with a high profile and the buzz that's happening around them and you're turning it all in, you're turning that buzz into money and um, and it's just a great experience. And, um, and that is that three to 12 person business. But when you hit 12 to 13, you actually cross a little bit of a weird threshold that no one knows is coming where the business becomes slightly too big. And it's kind of like a dinner party. If you've got 10 people sitting around a table, um, everyone's talking with each other, mm-hmm. talking together, one conversation, everyone's sharing the pizzas, right? And everything's just going smoothly and it's effortless. As soon as you go up to about 13, the table splits into two or three yeah. conversations. Right? So now and now it's like, oh, where's, you know, where's the wine? Where's the sign? Did someone, you know, someone doing this, someone doing that? What's going on? Right, so suddenly it's fragmented, and the same thing happens with a company that you hit a 13, 14, 15 people. Suddenly, you've got three or four different dynamics going on in the company. You're too big to be a small business anymore, but you're not big enough to be a big business. You need a CFO, you can't afford a CFO. You need someone who's like head of operations, but that sort of person's 80 grand, and you can't 
buy, buy them and you know you need an office or something and you know that's expensive and suddenly you're juggling these things that you need but can't afford and and then the weirdest thing happened about 16 17 people they start sleeping together and like all the romantic relationships or they start having big falling outs you know i don't want to work with so and so um, or I just don't get along with that person. So now you've got your team who were once this group who were all in it together, uh, musketeers, you know, no one rocking the boat. Now you've got weird relationships and hookups and breakups and you've got fights and, and people pulling in different directions. You've got the original crew who are so pissed off that we don't go out for pizza as a team anymore. You've got the new crew pissed off that we're not becoming a grown-up company fast enough. So all this weirdness gets in and it's all between 10 and 50 people or 10 and 40 people and it's essentially this growing up phase where you're too big to be small, too small to be big and um, and it's very difficult, really hard phase in business to get through, especially if you didn't know it was coming. Mm. For us, I mean, we've purposely stayed at the 12 mark. I think at one point we were 13, but the 13th was off-site. So and then we and then we were quickly back down to back down to twelve. So yep. we've always tried to stay at that level. Smart. It's really smart. It's that lifestyle boutique, fun, freedom, flexibility. Mm-hmm. You get a little bit famous for a niche. Um, you're having a good time. You're getting stuff done. You know, everyone loves the business. There's no real rules that are needed to run it. It's a great business. Because um, yeah, I've been talking to someone recently who like they hadn't started a business yet, but they were like, oh, I want a business of fifty people. And they just, they didn't understand that ride, but I feel like a lot of people have this perception of like I want to start a business, and a business because they've come from a corporate environment mm. is something with hundreds of people in. They don't think staff equals success. That yeah. it could be. Well, there are two breeds of entrepreneur. Really, there are, and one breed, and this is like 75, 80% of people who get into entrepreneurship are suitable for lifestyle businesses. And when they think of a business, they just think about the client and the customer and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this other breed of entrepreneur who's who's actually suited for performance business. And maybe that person is. And the, the fact that they think straight away about 50 people and what mm-hmm. that looks like actually might be for them the right move. And they start putting together a board of advisors. They start um, from day one. They fill in all of the forms to get certain tax status and the R&D credits. And they start bringing in technology and investors. And they start thinking about the assets of the business from day one. And that type of person, very different entrepreneur. In the same way, there are some people who play tennis because it's fun and some people who want to play professionally and they mortgage their house to kind of compete. And they're very different tennis players. Yeah. Um, So... You know, they, this this person you're talking about might actually be really suitable to be a performance entrepreneur, um, and they're the ones who are going for an exit. They're going for valuation. Um, you know, they're putting together. They're actually they geek out as much about the business um, essentials or the business itself as they do about what the business does. So you know, they're really geeking out about business stuff, yeah. not just this is the fun thing we do. Because it was described to me that a true entrepreneur is someone that, that builds a business in order to sell it. And for me, like I don't want to sell my business. I enjoy it too yeah. much. Yeah, totally um, totally legitimate. Um, I think there's a lifestyle entrepreneur and there's a performance entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're just a different breed. It's like saying, oh, a true tennis player plays at Wimbledon. Well, you know, a true professional tennis player mm. might aspire to that, mm-hmm. but... It doesn't necessarily. You could ha, you could love tennis and play tennis every week and just be loving tennis, and you know three times a week you're out there on the court and and it's great and yeah. and it doesn't mean you're not into tennis or that you're not a tennis player. You you know you're just not a professional tennis player. 
um, competing for that to be your main thing. Yeah, um, you know, so. that's great. That's really reassuring, actually. Yeah. And um, so I think for Adam and I, your book oversubscribed is is. I mean, we recommend it all the time to people. Um, you're just currently re-recording that I saw. Yes. So have, have there been any changes or, and, and has it been interesting like revisiting the book? Yeah, so the, the first version was written in 2014, released in 2015. And um, in 2016, something big happened, which was the US presidential election. Mm. And the US presidential election is like a Formula One of um, the marketing world. And campaigning. It's the most high stakes campaign on the planet. So whenever there's a US election, you've got to pay attention. Did they do anything special? Did they do anything unique in order to win? So if you go back to FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, mm-hmm. uh, he did something called the Fireside Chat and it was a national radio live broadcast uh, into everyone's home. And that was very unique, very innovative. And it actually sparked a move from print advertising and print marketing to live radio and radio jingles and radio advertising and all of that sort of stuff. And that was a huge move and and that was key to him winning. Uh, JFK went up against Nixon and uh, if you listen to Nixon on the radio and JFK on the radio, people who were radio listeners thought Nixon was a much stronger candidate. People who watched television, which was at the time the turning point, saw JFK as the stronger candidate. He was more handsome and, and he held himself better on camera. He wore a dark suit rather than a light suit, which showed up better on black and white. And he won because he was a television president. Um, Obama, fast forward, he was a social media uh, campaign that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. So when these things happen, you have to go, ooh, okay, that signals a shift. Uh, So in 2016, what happened was a data analytics campaign. So Cambridge Analytica is familiar to most people now. And essentially, it's hyper-targeted marketing. It's creating a messaging bubble that is completely customized to each user. Um, It means that two people living next door to each other on the same street might get completely different advertising and messaging and, and the marketing environment for them might respond differently around them. And that is a significant change. And the fact that the US presidential election was one in that way signals to or should signal to every marketer that the social media era uh, is now second place to the data marketing um, era. So what we actually have to do as marketers is we have to pay more attention to how we collect data, how we manage data, how we use data. So I brought that into the new book, Oversubscribed. I wanted to update the book with a lot of thinking around around data. And um, and sort of you know it's not it doesn't overwhelm the book it's the same core message but I th- I thought thought that I needed to at least update the book um, given that a seismic shift had happened in campaigning. So for someone running a small business, how do you get that data? Uh, the easiest way is to create uh, a survey um, or what what we call a scorecard. So a scorecard is essentially asking people to fill in little yes no questions and getting them to answer more, tell you more about themselves. Um, let me let me stay big and then I'll come down. So in January, Trump uh, did a military strike in Iran and killed the general mm-hmm. right of uh, in in the Iran. And what most people don't know is that the week after that, he ran 4,000 targeted ads to 4,000 segments across the UK, USA asking people, what did you think of that? So it basically says, what did you think of Trump's, uh, of my decisive action about Iran? Please answer the survey. So he surveyed 4,000 segments in a week, spent 600,000 US dollars doing it. 
And what that did is it told him exactly, state by state, demographic by demographic, what people thought of this action. You know, some people thought, said, you know, it might have been older people described it as decisive and, um, and essential and necessary. So when he goes and campaigns to older people, he says, you know, I'm decisive, essential, and you know, being necessary, <laughs> right? And then some people might have said it was reckless. So in which case, we won't even mention it to them. We'll just make sure that we just brush over that and go go for something else that they're interested in. So um, if you in the in the world of technology, you you have something called an MVP, a minimum viable product, and you test an MVP and see what people think of it. And essentially, what Trump did was an MVP on war in in the Middle East. He he did a strike, and then he and then he did survey data to see what people thought of that. Mm. I know this is really freaky stuff, right? I know we're in, into the dark arts of, <laughs> of of the world and how it works, but you can go and have a look at his campaign page and you can actually see all these ads, uh, 600 grand worth of ads in one week. So, um, uh, so, so what he's doing is he's surveying people and the difference is is that the old way of marketing is you come up with a message and then you broadcast it out. So you we sit together on our, at our team and we say, all right, how do we want to market this bottle of water we say okay we're going to say that it's fresh and it's new and it's exciting and it's you know george clooney drinks it right? <laughs> so we come up with all of these ideas and then once we're comfortable as a company we get our shit together and then we tell everyone look here's here's how, here's who we are and we hope that that works but we're pushing a message on people the new form of marketing has shifted the seismic change is that you just come up with every random idea you could possibly come up with throw it into Facebook ads and let the market tell you what they like. Um, So you might have seen a headline that said 88% of Boris Johnson's ads were misleading in the campaign. And what they didn't tell you is that most of those ads had a budget of £40. And what they were actually doing is not trying to mislead the public, um, although maybe they were, but... Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just talking about campaigning. But they weren't necessarily trying to mislead the public. They were coming up with all these random ideas that might be things that they could go with. Yeah. And, you know, like, so they might have said, oh, well, okay, let's run a 40-pound ad and see what people think about legalizing guns, right? Let's let's see what people think about hiring 20,000 nurses. Let's see what people think about hiring 20,000 firefighters. And they just run a, a random set of ads across thousands of demographics. And then the marketplace clicks on that and, and basically signals back, yeah, we like that, but we don't like that. We're not clicking that one, but we're really clicking that one. We're commenting on this one, but we're not talking about this one. So then they then pull all that data up and they say, all right, well, our campaign policy is going to be based around what you told us you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So we're going to build a campaign around that. <clears throat> so it's a reversal. Rather than coming up with a message and broadcasting it, it's coming up with many potential messages, sucking the data back and then saying, okay, here's what you told us. So small businesses, run more Facebook ads, right? Do more tests, 30 or 40 pound tests. Come up with 20 different things your company could go into business doing. Um, come up with hundreds of random ideas and just start advertising them, right? And and it might cost you two or three or 4,000 pounds to actually test hundreds of ideas. But then you'll be very clear exactly what people want. Exactly what <laughs> yeah. people want. And realistically, 4,000 pounds is one person's salary and desk for a month, Right, so for the for the cost of one person for one month, you could actually find out what the marketplace actually wants. Um, so it sounds expensive, but actually going after the wrong thing is very expensive, yeah. you know, an order of magnitude more. So, um, so you know, conduct more surveys. Ask. We run something called yes/no tests all the time. So it's just 
30 or 40 questions, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. You know, um, do you feel that your personal brand is strong? Yes. Do you feel that uh, you're comfortable when people Google your name that the right things come up? No. Um, do you, would you feel confident going in and delivering a 15-minute pitch um, without any preparation right now? Yeah, no. Right. So, so we're finding out what are people f- afraid of, what frustrates them, what are they comfortable with, what do they need help with. And how do you get people to actually go and do these quizzes? Um, my answer to that is you have to, you just spend money. So, and it's not much money. You know, for us, it costs about eight or nine pounds to get someone to complete a, a quiz. We run mm-hmm. Facebook ads. And to us, you know, getting, and, and it's not just quiz. I mean, they're also sales leads. So, you know, so we, we do business off the back of those. It's not like just we're spending random money, but we, we spend money, you know, I, I think most small businesses massively underspend on uh, on 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 promoting their product, they spend a lot of time and effort creating something. They don't spend a lot of time pushing it out. Um, and big companies, on average, spend something like six to nine percent of their revenue on advertising. Small companies are like two three percent, if that. And and in many cases, it's like they've built a beautiful rocket, but they're just not putting the fuel in it, or they're putting a third of the amount of fuel that yeah. is required, and then they're blaming the rocket. It's like you you have to spend six to nine percent of your of your revenue as a general rule on promoting stuff, putting it out there in the market. So if you want to do a hundred grand this year worth of sales, you're going to have to spend six to nine thousand on on ads. You know, break it down over the weeks, figure out what your weekly budget yeah. is, and start spending. And if you can't afford to do that, go join a team that can afford to do that until you can afford to do it, or until you can get an investor. Um, but ultimately. Um, you know, those the, the the answer to the question is you either hustle because you've got available time, and that's a stopgap what until you get the money. Yeah, and I think when it comes to things like Facebook ads, the people underestimate how important the actual copy and the creative that goes into creating Facebook ad is. And I know a lot of people will run one, and it doesn't get any clicks, mm. and they go Facebook ads are rubbish and they're a waste of money. And yeah. so it's, yeah, yeah I mean, you and, need to And experiment. also, Facebook is algorithmic. So um, it, Facebook itself doesn't figure out what's working for you until about week three, four, five. So it needs a certain amount of data for its algorithms to kick in and start producing results. So the, the new system with Facebook is you write 10 headlines, 10 body copies, 10 calls to action, 10 images. You upload all of that. Facebook mixes and matches it. Um, automatically creating thousands of variations of each ad, and um, you that's run. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so then, they're doing the job for us. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and on, they're doing A versus B versus C versus D versus A one versus B one versus C one. Like it's phenomenal. And then on top of that, as soon as people start clicking ads, they start building automatically uh, lookalike audiences. Mm-hmm. So they have something called Campaign Business Op- Optimizer, and uh, and provided you're running this campaign optimizing. Uh, algorithm it's AI driven machine learning and it basically automatically builds a lookalike audience and figures out that your person who clicks is someone who lives in London is 36 years old and buys Louis Vuitton handbags it's like that's who you're going for so it figures all that out but it can't do that as you know with all data you need enough data so it can't really do that until it's had like a couple hundred clicks at the very least 150 clicks is where it starts to it, where it starts to build a profile. So until fa- until you've given Facebook a chance to actually get 150 people to click through on your ad, you haven't even begun the process really. The, the fortunate thing for me is when I was 22 years old, I launched my first company pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, pre-all of that sort of stuff, and I had newspaper ads. 
newspaper ads, the minimum entry to the game was about six or $7,000. And you couldn't run an ad for yeah. less than $7,000. So therefore, in my mind, running a test ad is a $7,000 thing. Yeah. So I, you know, I see people today who are like, "Oh, Facebook ads didn't work for me." And it's like, "How much did you did you spend?" <laughs> and they're like, oh, 45 pounds." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, like, you know, in my mind, in my mind, you know, four five hundred pounds is where, you, where you're going to have to spend if yeah. you want to get a, a decent result. Um, there are there are little tests you can do for thirty or forty pounds, but um, but ultimately, all you're really looking at is just the basics of did this demographic outperform another demographic? But you're not going to make any money off it. Yeah. And I, and even when it comes to the the newspaper ads, you still were experimenting because you ran an upside down ad. Didn't you, to see if I <laughs> I uh, when when the business was at its height, uh, we were doing two to three, two to two hundred and fifty grand a month worth of ads, and um, and we were just testing everything. And we just kind of got into it. We we're making clearly we we're making too much money because <laughs> we we started thinking about like what could we test and. Um, you know, so we're testing all these alternative newspapers, and we're testing, you know, uh, full color versus two color versus mono, um, and we're testing uh, one third of a page versus quarter of a page versus one eighth of a page. You know, can we get the same result with less spend? So we're just trying to triangulate. You know, how how much do we really need to spend in order to get the best result? Um, and one of the ads was an upside down ad. We we thought, oh, what if you ran the ad upside down and they have to turn the page around? And that engages them, and that means that they actually, if they engage, then they're really likely to connect and buy. Terrible idea. <laughs> just didn't like people just did not even care uh, to the extent that we might have spent six or seven thousand dollars and and got no response or something like that. But so at least you learned from it. I think but that's the at least it made thing. a good story in my book. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um. So, what is being oversubscribed? Being oversubscribed is having a waiting list um, or turning people away. It's having more buyers than you can sell to. Uh, and it's ultimately businesses that are oversubscribed that make profit. Um, so the market doesn't tolerate profit. The market's not your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone thinks that entrepreneurship's this lovely little friendly thing that we go and walk out in the daisy fields and make lots of money. And the market's not your friend. First rule of economics is the market's job is to eradicate profit, moving, moving prices down, putting downward pressure. Uh, competition creates downward pressure. And, um, and eradicates profit. So essentially, most businesses will find an equilibrium where they can pay a wage. Um, so if you run a coffee shop and a normal manager's wage for a coffee shop is, say, 30 grand, then you'll earn 30 grand. Um, maybe you've taken a bit of a risk, so you earn 36 grand because it's a little bit of premium for taking a risk. Um, so essentially, you're earning what the market rate is for someone who, A, runs a coffee shop and, B, takes a little bit of a risk with a coffee mm-hmm. shop. Um, but that's the, that's the default equilibrium. Um, but the marketplace absolutely doesn't care if it, you're also losing money. So if you if you're empty, your coffee shop's empty, and you decide to give away coffee as a way of getting people in on the hope that they buy a cake, you know the market doesn't care that you're losing money on coffee uh, or or cake or or rent or any of that sort of stuff. It it is absolutely brutal. So the only businesses that uh, are in a position to tolerate profit is businesses that are oversubscribed, where there's a waiting list. If I ring you up and say, can you do this job for me? You say, I'm sorry, but this month we're completely booked. Um, and when you become oversubscribed, then, and, it, and when it's genuine, it's not theatre, it's actually mm-hmm. genuine. And you say, look, you know, it's it's 3,000 pounds and I can do it next week or next, sorry, next month. And uh, and someone says, wow, well, I've heard of someone who could do it for 2,500 pounds. And you go, 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 like work with them. Who is it? Oh, it's so-and-so. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, go for it. 
like no probs <laughs> because yeah. you're oversubscribed and you're not trying to compete to the bottom and you're not you're not sitting there oh well I'll match their price and I'll drop everything to do it if you're oversubscribed you you're confident with your pricing and it's not that you're confident with your pricing the market's holding your pricing up you know the market's supporting the price so you you know so hence you don't argue you know you're fine doing it it's a market rate um so and it sounds counterintuitive <clears throat> doesn't it because to to actually turn someone away and especially mm. to say oh yeah go with one of my competitors yeah. but what we found it, we like every time that we've done that they're like oh well we'll wait then we'll wait because yeah. because yeah they they want you and yeah. they but they always do say oh but so and so is going to do it cheaper and we so go okay cool that's cool yeah they're yeah. great they're yeah. awesome yeah they're not us but they're awesome yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's know. the kicker isn't it they're yeah. not us. and um <laughs> Yeah, there's a look. There's a reason we have a waiting list, and and um, and if you want to wait, that's cool. And if you don't, that's also cool. Like we're we're indifferent. We've got with or without you energy. Mm. This is happening with or without you. We're going to be fine with or without you. So get, wait or shove off. Um, <laughs> so in the nicest possible way. So what most companies don't know how to orchestrate this. It's a it's an it's something you can orchestrate, and you have to have a you have to have a three prong approach to doing this. Number one, you have to have a really powerful weekly baseline of activity, something that you do every week that um, that generates business, and it's like a I, I describe it as almost a perfect repeatable week. There's a there's a weekly activity. So for for me, when I'm, I had my first business. Every Sunday, we like on in year one when we did a million in our first year. Um, every Sunday we ran the same ad. Every Wednesday night we had an introduction to our business, like people could come to 60, 70 people, um, and then over the following ten days we would make about thirty five grand worth of sales, uh, and we would just repeat that every Sunday, same ad. Every Wednesday, an introduction event, uh, and then follow up phone calls. You know, and it just we did that forty two times and made one point three million in sales. So it was the perfect repeatable week. Same mm-hmm. ad, same presentation, same slides, same venue. Everything was the same. We just repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, so that that is what I'd call the weekly baseline. And then what you want to do is a quarterly spotlight campaign, something special every quarter that creates a bit of buzz. So guest speaker, guest product, you know, some sort of innovation, even just an experience of getting people around for drinks or getting people into your offices and doing something, having a little fireside chat with someone who's interesting, something that creates a little bit of buzz, um, running you know podcast episodes. And it's a spotlight. It's just a reason to spotlight your business again. And that should happen every quarter. And then you should capture these moments and put them all over social media. And we call that the annual big message. And you want to have a coherent message that goes across social media. It's not just photos of me eating my breakfast. <laughs> you want to have, you know, you want to have a nice clear message across the 12 months that says this is what we're about. This is what we do. Um, it, it's not salesy. It's just this is our, our brand message. Um, and then the, the most salesy thing you do is the perfect repeatable week. Uh, you know, part of the perfect repeatable week is hitting the phones and following up with leads and all that sort of stuff. The spotlight campaign is a little bit salesy, but mostly um, a branded experience. And then the top line is just branded, just just content, just good stuff, just give, 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 and um, and trust that it'll filter its way down. That's very important what you say there about give, 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 give. So it's it's not. It's not sales content. It's not. No. This is how great our product is. No, no, no one's going to listen to that. You know, we we have in our brain this thing called a hippocampus, which is a filter, and it just filters out anything that looks like that. 
Mm-hmm. So living in London, you know what it's like. You walk down a busy street, you might pass 500 complete strangers. And if you have a hippocampus that's functioning, you'll just walk straight past them and, and not even remember anyone's face or anything about them. Or you won't it just they won't even register. They'll just be objects to walk around. Um, if you didn't have a hippocampus, you'd feel compelled to get to know each of them and, and you, you'd feel like you have to say hello and, uh, and connect in some way. It would be hard to actually walk down a busy street if you didn't have a hippocampus filtering most things out. So in the marketing world, all marketing messages hit the hippocampus and they just get annihilated. They don't yeah. even go, yeah. they just don't even register. So there's only f- about five things that do get past the hippocampus, and that is anything that's scary, so a threat. So if you walk down the street wearing a, a baseball mask or a, uh, carrying a baseball bat, yeah, that'll yeah. get on people's radar because <laughs> you look like you could be scary. Yeah. Uh, sexy, so if you walk down, not, not any of us, but if, if someone <laughs> oh, thanks, you know, if, if someone could pull it off, perhaps they, uh, you know, they, they're in their, in their sexy outfit and they're walking down the street, they'll get through people's hippocampus. Um, strange or weird or out of place um, yeah, will get through the hippocampus. If you go dressed as a hot dog uh, walking down the street, that will that will work. Um, and then the, the those three aren't useful at all to an entrepreneur. You don't want to be strange, sexy, or yeah, yeah. Um, you know, se- you don't want to be sexy because the wrong people always mm. <laughs> respond yeah. to sexy. You never get the right people <laughs> by being sexy. So the final two is uh, giving away things of value for free. So if someone is genuinely giving something of value away, that actually is through the hippocampus. We we have our we we're skeptical. What is this? What's the catch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it actually registers. So someone who gives something of value away is is gets pierces the the hippocampus and a friend, someone who you already know, like and trust. So if you spot a friend on the street, you stop and you have a chat oh, and, yeah, and you spot them from across the road, right? So your brain is taking everything in. It's actually all coming in because you can spot a friend. You know, you can literally look through the window of a bus that's moving and spot your friend on the other side of the road yeah. through the glass. And how did that happen? Like, how did how did they just pop up on your radar like that? Because everything's going in. It's just getting filtered out. So, uh, so the two things that are useful for being a business is, number one, giving away something of value for free, and number two, becoming a friend who's known, liked, and trusted. Um, so when companies are sharing valuable blogs, Sharing videos, sharing podcasts, sharing ideas, giving away books, giving away, you know, um, information, uh, hosting events. If they're doing that and it's valuable and they're not asking anything in return, that is actually getting through to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they do that enough and they clock up enough time and interactions with people, then they end up becoming a friend. And then they'll be, and then anything they say will get through. I mean, we can definitely vouch for that. We've only been doing this podcast for a year. Um, and of the thousands of people that, that listen to it, we're working with a very, very small percentage of those. But to those people that we do meet and work with, they say things like, oh, it's weird talking to you in real life. I feel like I know you. Yeah. Mm. And so we have become friends just through just providing through value. Just giving, yeah. giving value and showing up again and again. You've done what's called 7-11-4. So seven hours, 11 interactions, four locations uh, is the actual research that says you move from being an acquaintance to a friend at the seven-hour mark, the 11 interaction mark, or the four-location mark. So um, if I met you for the first time today and then we went out to lunch, location number two, and then we worked together at a project and we're in a boardroom, that's location number three, and then if we kind of went and sat at the Soho House, we'd, you know, location number um, four, we would actually, by the end of that day, go, oh, we've spent seven hours together and been in four locations together, 
by the end of that day we'd be like would be way friendlier than at the start of the day. It's mm. a trick that pickup artists use that they take. It's all based on the same research. People, yeah, to it's like do mini dates and go it, from one place to the other. Yeah. It's based on research that is about bonding behavior and how the human brain forms bonds. Um, Google did great research into it called Zero Moments of Truth. Yes. And it was essentially just saying that if you interact with people 11 times, that's the point where they start to trust you enough to buy. Um, but Google could see from people's interactions online that people were unlikely to buy unless that interacted with the brand 11 times. And at around the 11 time mark, they get the credit card out and buy something. Yeah. Um, so they, they were encouraging people to create a journey that people could actually clock up 11 good quality interactions with the company uh, in the online environment. So it's all based on the same sort of research. Um, you know, there are nefarious ways to apply it, but, but, but it's, that's, you know, from a branding perspective, you don't want to rush people. You want to build a relationship, seven hours, 11 interactions, four locations. Yeah. It's something we always say to people is that you can't make a friend from a 10 second conversation in the street. So, so yeah, but, but then on that note, if I'm a graphic designer and I'm working on my own, and I mean, because you've like got a whole book, 24 Assets, that's, a, that's about mm. the importance of, of producing content. Mm. Um, how, do, how do people find time and like how important is it to dedicate time to be producing content for the internet? Mm. So you're not going to like my answer or, or the graphic designer's not going to like my answer. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, business is a team sport. So you can't actually create time. There's no way of manufacturing time. We all get 24 hours a day. Branson and Elon Musk have got 24 hours a day. And, you know, that's their frustration as well. They don't have enough time to do all the things they want to do. So it's a very human experience, whether you're a multi-billionaire or you're, you know, just starting out. So ultimately, the only option, the only place to go is team. So team versus time. So if you say, I don't have enough time, the real answer is you don't have enough team. Business is ultimately a team sport. Um, and teams of three or four massively outperform solopreneurs. Mm. A solopreneur is essentially, and you're going to hate me for saying this, right? But it, well, you guys won't, but your listeners might. Uh, a solopreneur is essentially, unfortunately, someone who has the worst parts of a job without the security <laughs> and, and the worst parts of a business without the scalability. So pick one. You're either in business or go get a job. And if you're in business, you need a team. You need three or four people and you're going to work together, and then you're going to get this magical thing that happens that Henry Ford discovered, that if you get people working at teams, you massively increase output as a team when, when each person's focused on their thing and you're working and coordinating together. You spend a little bit of time figuring out you're going to work on sales, I'm going to work with existing clients, I'm going to do management and admin stuff. You get a little bit of team play going, um, and then you know that's the, that's the breakthrough moment. The next thing that manufactures time is actually digital assets. So digital assets have superpowers. So the superpower with a digital asset is it transcends time. So you record this today and it'll be available in 10 years time. Uh, it uh, transcends distance. So someone could be listening to this in Brisbane or Boston or Bangalore. Um, you know, so bang, it's all over the world straight away. And it transcends wear and tear. It could be listened to a million times and it won't lose any quality. Yeah. So when you look at digital assets as a first you get a team together and then as a team you carve out the time to create digital assets and over over a period of time so i've got 400 videos that we've stuck on our youtube channel over the years and something like 10,000 hours a year gets watched of those historical youtube videos and when you look at it and you think okay i'm 
in in the person who's watching in their mind i'm meeting them yeah. for that hour i'm clocking up time with people which didn't take me any time so then you hit this momentum curve where you have enough digital assets doing the heavy lifting that people have already spent seven hours with you by the time they get through and talk to you so yeah step one you've got to you've got to form teams you've got to cut you've got to figure out you got to say enough this doesn't work being on my own i have to be a team i've got to go networking for a co-founder i've got to find some other people who are in the same position as me and we form a company together we form a team together we do we however we figure that out we'll we'll sit down we'll have a pizza and at the end of three hours we'll aim to have come up with 10 ways that we might work together and we'll pick one mm-hmm. um what do you then say to the people who are very very scared and reluctant to give away a piece of their business you're giving away a piece of nothing you, you know, because you know. we get that a lot. Yeah. I, I, I think I need help, but I don't want to. I don't want to give any, anything away. Well, try and sell it if it's valuable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not the, the idea for starters. Ideas aren't valuable, right? Here's an idea: knock down this building, put up a skyscraper. There you go. There's a billion dollar idea. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, billion pound idea. <clears throat> Woo. Right. I mean, yeah. it's in the works. This is shortage. So yeah. it's it will, yeah. But you're not going to get any money for the idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get any money for the idea. The idea, whoever does the knocking down and the putting up, yeah. they, they get the action. Yeah, I think like Uber's a good example of that. Like they weren't the first per- people to come up with an app for, for cabs, but they were the first people to do it well and put in the action to make it a thing that now everyone uses. And now it is a billion dollar company. Yeah. Or multi billion. Yeah, 50 billion, yeah. Or whatever it is. Yeah, the the idea is not valuable. It's it's implementing the idea that that has all the value and the market's brutal. Einstein created the theory of uh, relativity, made no money off it, none. Mm. Most valuable idea of the nineteen nineteen hundreds, and uh, you know he he won a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and that was the equivalent in today's term of a million dollars. He put that into his own home that he bought, and uh, and when he died, he passed on that home to his family, and that was the sum total of his net worth. Um, and you know this idea that you can have a valuable idea and suddenly that's worth something. It's like, come on, you know, you you know, be a grown up. Mm-hmm. I, Einstein didn't even get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, one of my favourite things that you said is create, don't consume. What do you mean by that? We live in a society, <clears throat> as people are listening to this and consuming podcasts. Yeah. Uh, we live in a society where there's so much stuff you could consume. Um, you can consume the news, you can consume Netflix and entertainment, you can consume food, you can consume, consume, consume. And the truth about consumption is it wears you out and it makes you numb and it makes you dull and um, blunt. Um, and it's actually the process of creation that brings you alive, brings you joy, makes you sharp. <clears throat> and if you've got time to listen to a podcast, you should actually be recording one. Um, so if you're listening to this, stop it and go record your own podcast. Uh, if you've got time to watch YouTube videos, you should be creating YouTube videos. If you've got time to be reading the news, you should be writing a news article and, and or a blog. Um, if you've got time to be consuming products, you've got time to be creating products. We live in a very unique time in history where anyone can have a crack at, can, at creating something uh, and, um, and actually there's not a lot of joy left in consuming stuff. You know, the joy that you feel from consumption is a dopamine rush. And dopamine is the reward minus the expected reward. And because we understand how things work now, there's no joy. There's, we know how it works. We're expecting a reward and there is none. As soon as you expect the reward, there's, there's no dopamine. Mm. So this whole thing of like going around trying to consume stuff, it's not going to bring any joy or sharpen you in any way. 
um, stop reading books and start writing one. You know, you'll, the, the book that changes your life the most is not something you read, it's one you write. And if you write a book, you'll get way more out of that and you'll move yourself way further forward than reading 100 books. Amazing. Motivational shit. Um, <laughs> dude, this was awesome. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, all the usual places, Instagram and Twitter and, and that sort of stuff, or LinkedIn if that's your jam. And uh, I have the Key Person of Influence scorecard if you want to join my little data funnel and be be uh, Donald Trumped by me. <laughs> <laughs> Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, and uh, Dent.Global is, is our company, so you can check that out, which is where we run our accelerators and and uh, and the introduction events that we do and all that sort of stuff that we. That what we do. does the key person of influence? Um, so key person of influence being like you're well known within your niche for, um, for that thing. What does the what does the calculator, uh, reveal about people when they? So we measure people on five things: your ability to pitch your idea, uh, your published content that you have out there in the marketplace that people could learn about you through reading, um, or you know content. Uh, the product ecosystem that monetizes that, the profile that you've built in the marketplace and the partnerships that you've put in place. And there's some easy wins where you can get score a few points pretty easily just with some basic stuff you can do and you can learn, you know, you can often by taking the scorecard you can actually see, oh, I should do that or, you know, that's an easy one. I could easily, you know, do that one. And then there are some harder ones um, that we ask you, things about, you know, going internationally and putting your message in other geographies and, um, putting partnerships in place with companies that are bigger than you. Uh, and we ask you a series of questions, rapid fire, 40 questions, and then we give you a score, an overall score as to how you're performing as an influencer in your space. Not influencer like an Instagram influencer, but influencer as an entrepreneur getting their business into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And and then we give you an individual score for the five Ps and give you a report that suggests what you might do to improve the five Ps. Um, so how you might improve your pitch, how you could uh, build a better product ecosystem. Uh, so all of that's included. It's completely free. You just basically go in and fill in the 40 questions. It takes five minutes and then you'll get a, a customized report. Amazing. Cool. Thank Thank so thanks, Dan. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.